So what do cats, astronauts, and electrodes all have in common? Well, in the 1960s, Dr. Barry Sturman was contracted by NASA to do an investigation on the negative health effects of rocket fuel. Rocket fuel, as it turns out, is uh, very toxic, very toxic, and uh, some of the astronauts and ground crew were having some negative health consequences from being in contact with it. Naturally, this was concerning to NASA, and so they contracted a Dr. Barry Sturman to investigate the health consequences. And he proceeded to do so with cats. This was back in the day when experimenting on animals was a little bit more uh, acceptable in the scientific community than it probably would have been today. And so he set about exposing cats to rocket fuel. Now, as I mentioned before, rocket fuel is quite neurotoxic. And typically when you expose mammals to high levels of it, what happens is they have very bad seizures. They go into full-on grand mal seizures, and then eventually they die. And they kind of knew this and expected this going in, but Dr. Sturman noticed something very interesting, which was that a large number of the cats in his study seemed to be absurdly resistant to seizures. They were studying the effects, sure, but they had a pretty good idea of what would happen when they exposed the cats to a certain amount of rocket fuel. And many of the cats survived um, and were far more resistant to seizures a lot longer than they really expected them to be. So this was very surprising. This was very unexpected. And most of the other cats responded as expected. They had significant seizures and passed away. But Dr. Sturman couldn't figure out what was leading to some of these cats being just absurdly resistant to seizures in the face of exposure to a very significant toxin. Like the apple falling on the head of Sir Isaac Newton, the answer to Dr. Sturman's question relies on a combination of sheer circumstance and keen scientific observation, and will, at least in part, set in motion a revolution in mental health treatment that has persisted into this day. I've studied it, I've trained in it, I've benefited from it, I've watched people benefit from it. Today on the Resilient Father podcast, neurofeedback therapy. Yeah, I'm resilient. Won't get caught up in my woes. I just do it for those ten tiny fingers and toes. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to be advocating for people inhaling rocket fuel. I will finish that story for you in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about mental health care. Traditionally, if you are experiencing a mental health challenge, there's a couple of different avenues that you can sort of pursue to try to make yourself feel better. You can say, go and see a therapist, get some counseling. And that would involve sort of a lot of times working on changing your thinking, your feelings, your behavioral patterns into more constructive things, and thus you will begin to feel mentally healthier. Uh, another option would be, say, lifestyle changes. So maybe doing things like changing your diet or increasing your level of exercise, getting more sleep can also uh, serve to improve your mental health. And then as well, another option that uh, very frequently gets employed is psychiatric medication. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, sleep aids, anti-anxiety medications. These are evidence-based treatments, but they come with some side effects, and sometimes people have to go through a period of trialing several different medications and experiencing side effects before they can find something that's a good fit for them. But what if there was another way? 
Because it's not just a soup of chemicals up there in your brain. It's not just made up of thoughts and feelings. There's also a whole lot of electricity. A whole lot of highly organized electricity. In fact, your brain generates enough of an electromagnetic field that you can place a small sensor, an electrode, on someone's head, put a little bit of gel to help increase the connectivity, and literally pick up the electrical activity coming off of the brain. It looks very much like those squiggly lines that you would see on old-fashioned medical equipment. And what you'll see typically is various jagged bursts of electrical activity, followed by very synchronized bursts of smooth rhythmic activity. And all of these different types of activity represent various speeds of electrical activity within the brain, various levels of connectivity, and the activity of just billions and billions of neurons all firing together in synchrony to generate large-scale electrical rhythms. Back to our friend Dr. Sturman. As he scratched his head over his cats, he eventually came to the realization that several of the cats that had been highly resistant to seizures were ones that he had previously used in other experiments. Specifically, he had been experimenting with operant conditioning. This is where you train animals to carry out various, sometimes complex, tasks in exchange for rewards. Cats are pretty smart. You can train them to do a lot of stuff. In this case, what they did was they gave cats small rewards of milk in exchange for generating a specific electrical rhythm in their brain. Literally, they had these cats hooked up to little EEGs, little electroencephalographs, and every time the cats produced approximately 12 to 15 hertz of electrical activity, what's known as the SMR wave, the sensor motor rhythm, the cats would be rewarded with a small drop of milk on their tongue. Within a very short period of time, the cats very quickly developed the ability to shift their brain activity at will. They wanted that milk, and they were able to rapidly learn how to adjust their brain activity in order to get more of the reward. Originally, it was just a proof of concept. They weren't really doing it with any specific goal in mind. They just wanted to see if they could train the cats to change their brain activity by conditioning them. The cats really seemed kind of unchanged. You know, they would occasionally pause and seem to kind of relax and chill out when they were purposely trying to activate this rhythm to get a reward. But otherwise, he figured they seemed fine. So he used them for other experiments. And it wasn't until the brains of these cats endured extreme medical conditions that he really began to look more closely at the effect that this training had had. The story goes actually that one of his lab technicians suffered from a seizure disorder and became very very interested in the results that they had found in this study and the effect that these cats had had. And so very quickly they decided to see if they could reproduce these results in humans. Again not the uh, neurotoxic rocket fuel part but the SMR training part and the potential benefits of reducing seizures part. Now, if you want to train somebody to change their brain activity, you don't need milk with humans because humans are pretty smart. You just need what's called feedback, biofeedback. If I want to train your brain, I sit you down in front of a computer screen, and I hook up an electrode to your head that picks up your brain activity and sends it to a computer. The computer tracks various levels of brain activity, and feeds them back to you on a screen in the form of all kinds of things, but often gamified. So you might see a video playing or a car racing across the screen, maybe some nice music playing. Every time your brain does more of what we want, you get more of the game working on the screen. The music gets louder, the cars goes faster, the video plays. 
Every time your brain does less of what we want, the video pauses, the music gets quiet, the car slows down. People who are willing to sit and pay attention and try to control the feedback that they get on the screen can often very quickly learn to change their brain activity consciously through the process of biofeedback, being fed back biological activity and making it conscious to your brain. In his research, Dr. Sturman was able to show that not only could humans learn to do this very quickly and easily, but that the beneficial effect of this SMR training carried over to seizure activity as well. It's not necessarily a cure per se for seizure disorders, but it can really help to significantly improve the brain's ability to regulate itself and inhibit seizure activity. The SMR wave is a powerful resting state. It represents sort of a natural idling rhythm that allows people to sit still and settle. And when it gets trained up, it helps the brain to damp down on seizure activity and stop it spreading, which is what you don't want. Seizures get bad when they spread. And so if you increase the ability's brain to damp down on the spread of overactive electrical activity, this cascading electrical activity, um, you can actually potentially help people to reduce the incidence and the frequency of seizure. And as I understand it, this is actually a well-documented therapy. Neurofeedback applies not just to seizures, but it's been investigated for treating a large number of mental health conditions. It's fairly well known for being involved in the treatment of ADHD and attention difficulties in children, but also adults. People use it in the treatment of anxiety, depression, sleep difficulties. It's been investigated in the treatment of trauma, cognitive impairments, and even performance enhancement. A skilled neurofeedback practitioner can take samples of brain activity from several different points of your skull, or if they have something really fancy, they can put one of those sort of swim caps that you see on TV when they do scans of monks that have, you know, 20, 30 channels on them. You can put those on someone's head and gather a whole bunch of data all at once, but it's also possible to do it just with a a single sensor. But ideally, a skilled practitioner will take samples of multiple different parts of the brain and multiple different examples of how the brain is activated, say things like eyes open, eyes closed. They might have you do some basic challenges such as math to try to see how your brain reacts when you try to put it under pressure, under load. And they can build almost like a profile. They can identify, say, areas of your brain that might be running too fast, areas of your brain that might be running too slow, And how these things can sort of correlate with stress, anxiety, depression, focus difficulties. For example, people with too much fast brainwave activity in the beta range, anywhere from 15 to 25 hertz, they might experience muscle tension, racing thoughts, difficulty relaxing. Whereas a child with ADD who just simply can't pay attention in class because their mind continuously wanders on them might have an excess of theta wave activity, 4 to 8 hertz which is very slow and helpful in imagination, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, but not so great if you're actively trying to pay attention in school. With neurofeedback, you can suss out these difficult or sometimes unhelpful brain patterns and help to teach the brain more natural and engaged ways of functioning. You can slow down the brainwave activity that's associated with stress and increase brainwave activity that's associated with attention, focus, and self-regulation. Now, I mentioned before, I'm trained in neurofeedback. For a time, I maintained a certification. I took didactic in-person trainings. I studied under a mentor virtually, and I did supervised treatment for several years. The first time I tried neurofeedback, uh, I was underwhelmed. I didn't really feel much of a difference at all. And I thought, oh man, have I, you know, dedicated all this 
time, all this learning, all this money in these courses, and, and I'm doing something that actually isn't really going to help me or other people. And I did two more training sessions after that. I was training the SMR wave, the one that helped to reduce instances of seizures in cats. Uh, it also actually just really is a powerful kind of calming, regulating effect on the brain for all kinds of people, not just for seizures, but even just anyone who has somewhat difficulty relaxing, somewhat difficulty sleeping, somewhat difficulties with attention, focus. I think it was on the uh, about the third session of doing it that I really found that it it kicked in. And I remember knowing it had worked because I felt uncomfortably calm, not in a bad way, but just I had I had never felt so relaxed in in this way. It really kind of hit this this spot, this sort of deep tension, this deep discomfort that I've been carrying around. Almost I didn't even realize that I've been carrying around because it was so so pervasive and unconscious. But the neurofeedback kind of made it conscious, and I just I noticed this relaxation kick in and sort of a letting go of that tension and for a little while it was kind of it would almost felt kind of weird like it was like everything had gone quiet but then you know i kept at it and it just it felt better and better and i just felt more and more relaxed and i found like my ability to regulate myself was better i was less irritable in situations that would normally make me upset i was sleeping better i could think more clearly and so i kept learning i kept training i kept developing these skills the clinic I worked for was actually a chiropractor, and uh, we did a lot of really interesting stuff with concussions. We helped people to sort of calm down after experiencing them and enhance brain function associated with attention and focus, which a lot of them were struggling with. And this goes back to what I was talking about before, these sort of pathways to mental health. Either you use medication to regulate the brain chemically, or you use counseling and psychotherapy to change underlying thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. One of the things that I found most fascinating about neurofeedback was the effect that changing brainwave activity had on thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Things that typically were thought only to be able to be influenced by dedicated practice and sort of willpower or with medication. With neurofeedback, you can't get as specific as training up or down certain thoughts because you're looking at sort of broad spectrum metabolic activity in the brain, broad levels of activation. But what you can do is change that overall level of activation, which can greatly improve overall connectivity, uh, enhance just sort of the smoothness and functionality of the brain, and just really calm people down. Many times I saw people who would come in with, you know, struggling with mood regulation, having difficult thoughts, difficult feelings, and they wouldn't necessarily be looking for help in that area. They would be there to improve their focus or recover from a concussion or something like that. But very interestingly, as they began training and as they began getting benefits from the treatment, one of the things that a lot of them would mention is that the negative sort of thought patterns that they had often just weren't nearly as present, weren't nearly as strong, weren't nearly as believable anymore. People's cognitive mental health, sort of their their thoughts and feelings, would improve as their brain function got more regulated. 
Unfortunately, around the time that neurofeedback was really starting to gain popularity, pick up its stride, and develop an interest in the scientific community, uh, a lot of hippies got a hold of it and made a lot of very unrealistic medical claims about what it could actually do for people. And so, as such, it got a little bit of a negative reputation, and it wasn't as widely adopted as I, I kind of wish that it was. Instead, mental health care really has focused primarily on medication and psychotherapy as forms of treatment. And I'm not going to knock those because they are both extremely effective. I mean, I'm studying counseling now. And part of the reason for that is neurofeedback is not a cure-all. You know, it has a lot of benefits. It has a lot of really interesting and powerful effects. Sometimes it can help people in ways that they haven't been able to be helped before. But it doesn't work for everybody. I would say a small percentage of the people I saw, it was life-changing for them. It completely changed around their symptoms. It made them feel better. It made them happier. It made them higher functioning. The majority of clients, I would say, got a benefit from it. It didn't relieve all of their problems. It didn't take everything away. They still had some difficulties, some symptoms, some struggles. But in general, it helped them to feel better and function better. It improved their overall quality of life. And then finally, some people just simply do not respond to neurofeedback. There is about 30% of the population who, when you attempt to train them, they really can't adjust their brain activity in response to the feedback, and they, they can't benefit from the therapy. Unfortunately, you won't really know until you try. But if you are someone who can benefit, you can benefit a lot. So these days, as I said, neurofeedback hasn't been as widely accepted or used, I think, as it could or should be. It does get used somewhat frequently, though. As I said, some uh, insurance companies in the States will cover, say, neurofeedback treatment for ADHD. I know people like the military have been looking at it as a method for treating PTSD. The technology has continued to advance more and more and more. Original traditional neurofeedback was done with one or two sites. You would train one site at a time and just try to train up one or two brain waves, train down one or two brain waves. Nowadays, they can put a 20-channel EEG on your head and measure 20 different brain sites at once and do things like measure your brain activity against a database of thousands of people to create a healthy model of the brain. And then they can identify areas where your brain is activated or functioning differently than this sort of ideal perfect brain. And they can use the neurofeedback to try to train you back to it. EEG modeling is getting sophisticated enough now as well that they can correlate electrical activity to actual neural networks. And they've begun to be able to improve the connectivity and the communication between different neural networks, something that's called Loretta neurofeedback training. They're even doing neurofeedback now with things other than EEGs. They're actually using MRIs, you know, stick people in a, a full 3D brain scanner and they can specifically identify with that one or two areas of the brain. They can go deep into things like the amygdala, deep brain structures, and train people to downregulate literally the part of the brain that is associated largely with the fear response. We live in a beautiful time to be alive. Scientific advancements are growing ever stronger and technology is growing ever cheaper. And so I hope that neurofeedback will kind of slowly grow and become more and more adopted in the mainstream. If you are interested in trying out neurofeedback, a couple of things I would suggest. I would suggest staying away from the consumer devices that are out there right now. There are a few meditation aids where you put an electrode on your head and it's supposed to help improve your ability to meditate. 
I don't know a lot about those. I haven't dug into a lot about how they work, but personally, I'm a bit suspicious of them because of the sort of one size fits all approach. Something I learned in neurofeedback is that everybody's brain is different and everybody's brain has different and unique needs. And saying that this one particular type of training is going to benefit everybody, I think is a, a big reach, a big stretch. And if you're really trying to get a therapeutic benefit and a consistent benefit out of neurofeedback, I would highly recommend doing it with someone who is trained and experienced in the field, who knows how to assess brainwave activity, compare it to the symptoms that you have, and develop clinical training protocols. Be wary as well of people operating consumer model neurofeedback as a business or as a treatment. There are a lot of uh, sort of consumer-grade neurofeedback units out there where they will sell it to a person as a business model, and that person will begin practicing neurofeedback. Again, these models, they actually can be quite effective. They can be really useful. I'm not going to knock them. They have therapeutic benefit for sure. But again, if you're especially looking for help with a more serious issue, a more significant struggle, I would really look for somebody, say, like a psychologist who is doing neurofeedback and who has done more extensive training in the field. You can ask them things like, do they do an initial assessment, brain mapping? What kind of training do they have to do to get into the field? Do they offer tailored training approaches and protocols, or is it sort of a more one-size-fits-all approach? You can go on the website of the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance, that's the BCIA, that's an organization that has developed standards of training for neurofeedback professionals. They have a listing of professionals who have maintained the certification, and if you're looking for help, I mean, that's where I would suggest going, is going on that website and finding someone with that training. One more thing, it is expensive. Although a very traditional neurofeedback provider will tell you you need somewhere between 20 to 40 sessions to make it really stick, I have seen it work faster. I've seen some people benefit from as little as 8 to 12 sessions of treatment, but you still have to pay for that time and pay for that access to the equipment. So if you're financially struggling significantly and it's going to be a huge financial impact for you to go and get neurofeedback therapy, there is a risk that you could go through with it and have it not work. So I would suggest trying things like psychotherapy, trying things like lifestyle changes, trying options like medication before you commit to a course of neurofeedback therapy if you're stretching to afford it. So yeah, if you've got some income to spare and you're struggling with some brain stuff, some mental health stuff, might be worth looking into neurofeedback therapy. That's all for me for today. Thanks for listening. Um, as always, if you want to email me with some feedback, some thoughts about the show, some suggestions for guests that I can interview, feel free to reach out to me at theresilientfather at gmail.com. I've actually received a couple of emails from people reaching out, and it's been really nice to hear from someone who's kind of enjoyed and, and benefited from the stuff that I'm this podcast. So if you're out there and you're enjoying things, hey, drop me a line. Thanks so much for listening, and take care of yourself, Dad. <laughs>